listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We're in Luke chapter 9 this week, and I would invite you to turn your Bibles there. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 27. Last week, we looked at uh, Luke chapter 8, um, and it's exciting to open the text of Scripture. I've been studying it this week. Um, Before we uh, dive into the text and try to introduce it and then break it down into four different parts, I just want to stop and say thank you. Uh, Thank you for giving Uh, during 2021. Also, thank you for your generosity. Uh, I'm not sure how close we are to our uh, Give Hope initiative, uh, but we're well on our way. Um, So uh, people are continuing to give to that. Again, thank you for your generosity. And then you can see all the gifts around the Pregnancy Resource Center tree. So thank you for your kindness and your concern and your compassion and your desire to serve others uh, during these seasons of uncertainty. When we come to Luke chapter 9, we're 18 months into the public ministry of Jesus. We're at the halfway point of his public ministry. And what we understand in our study so far in the first eight chapters is that all that's gone on in Jesus' ministry has been focused on him and it has been done by him and his disciples, the, the 12, they've gathered around him, but they're following and sometimes helping, but for the most part, they are observers and spectators. But something's fixing to change when we come to Luke chapter 9. You see, the Word of God has been spreading, and the crowds have been growing. In fact, the crowds are overwhelming, and the ministry of Jesus is um, is transitioning from just Him being the focal point and His efforts and His proclamation to Him equipping and empowering and entrusting the disciples. And here in Luke chapter 9, He's going to entrust them with a brief internship as they go out and do what they've seen Him do, and then they're going to come back and give Him a report. So in this disciple uh, internship, them going and what they do and when they come back and how they respond and what they learn or don't learn in that process, we're going to have a a courtside seat to that to be able to look at that and understand that and probably walk away with some answers to the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And so I want to begin reading in the text, Luke chapter 9, we're going to break it down into four parts. The first thing we see is Jesus sins, verses 1 to 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and, and do not have two tunics Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And he changes the subject matter. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. A focal point 
Luke wants Theophilus to understand that there's some historical context to what Jesus' disciples are doing. He's trying to convince Theophilus of who Christ is, and so he takes us straight to Herod, not the Herod in the early portions of Luke's gospel. That Herod is dead, but one of his sons, and he's over a region, the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. He was curious and probably was looking for some entertainment value. And I don't believe that Herod at this point was taking Jesus or his disciples or the rumblings of some type of social transformation. I don't think he was concerned about that too deeply at all. That's my own opinion. So Jesus sins. The second thing we see is that, is that um, Jesus satisfies. The disciples have come back, verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. You guys just went out on mission. I just sent you out. Y'all were proclaiming, y'all were healing, y'all were casting out demons. Why don't y'all give him, why don't y'all give these people something to eat? You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. Again, I believe there's sarcasm here. I don't believe they're really serious. We've only got five, five loaves and two fish. They know, nothing, they know five loaves and two fish is not going to feed a crowd like this. Um, they, they may have some money in the treasury, but uh, they probably couldn't find enough food at a local market to feed this many people. He said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes unless we are to go and buy food. And in John chapter 6 and verse number 7, Philip said it would take 200 denarii a year's wages, and that would probably give everybody enough food just to, just to wet their taste buds but not satisfy them at all. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, so Jesus takes over now, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and, then all, and, and, and had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus satisfies. Jesus sins. Thirdly, we're going to see this morning that Jesus suffers. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the, who do, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered. Now, notice they said the same thing that Herod said. So there is this popular opinion that's circulating about who Jesus is. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. You are Christos. You are, uh, in Hebrew, Mashiach. 
You are the anointed one. You are the one that is to come and redeem Israel. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And Jesus does something really strange. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus sins. Jesus satisfies. Jesus suffers. We surrender. We surrender. Notice how Jesus finishes up with this text. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If Jesus is going to suffer, it stands to reason that those who follow Jesus will suffer. I don't think the two can be separated. If if anybody's going to come after me, if anybody's going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For, and he gives us this for because these are reasons. You could put because in there. It could be translated because. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I'm not going to deal with verse 27. Um, So if you were coming today hoping that you could get some insight and understanding on what that means, um, I'm just going to stop at verse 26. And and you you can figure that out on Google this week, I guess, because I don't know the answer to it. The first thing I want you to see is this. Jesus, Jesus sins. Jesus sins. Now, now, when Jesus sins, we see him sending out the 12. When we come to chapter 10, verse 1, we see him sending out 72. When we come to Acts 1.8, and Luke wrote the book of Acts, we see him sending them out to Jerusalem. When the Spirit comes to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, we also see in Matthew 28 that Jesus is telling them to go into all the world. And proclaim good news. We also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where we are to plead with men in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God as ambassadors. And so we we see this this, uh, continuation of proclamation. There seems to me to be a universal call to all who believe to be sent out in his power and to relate to those in our our sphere of influence in very specific ways. Now, I, I... I just kind of put some weight on that for a minute because some people say that going and proclaiming the gospel is apostolic and we don't have to do that. Now, I don't know why anybody would want to say that myself. I really don't. And if that's what you believe, I don't know why you believe that. Um, I, I, I want to I see people come to know Jesus Christ. And I believe that the means that a sovereign God uses to reach people with the gospel is the proclamation of those who believe in him. And so Jesus is sending. I believe Jesus sent the 12. He sent the 72. He sent Paul on his missionary journeys. He sends the Corinthians and he sends you and me. He sent them out as teams and they ultimately returned to the sending community to worship and to celebrate the transformation of lives, the deliverance from darkness and the power and glory of God. 
So let me break it down and give you some specifics. First of all, Jesus sends his disciples out to proclaim his kingdom. John the Baptist came proclaiming his kingdom in, John, um, in, in Luke 3, 18. John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ himself in Luke 4, 18, when they were like, Jesus, stay here. Jesus is like, no, I've got to go to other villages. Why? Because I've got to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He said the same thing in Luke 4 and 43 and Luke 5 and 1 and 17 and Luke 6, verse 6 and 17. In chapter 8 and verse 1, we see the same thing happening. Jesus is going and teaching in Luke 8, 39 and right here in Luke chapter nine and verse two, the same thing is happening. Go and proclaim the kingdom. Go and proclaim the kingdom. We are in this world. We are not of this world. There are kingdoms in this world. There are institutions in this world, but they are not life-giving institutions and they are not governed by good kings. There is a good king who is coming to a sinful people. And he's going to love them and bear their sin. This good king is perfect and holy. And he says, bring me your sin and I will die your death for your sin in your place. And I will give you eternal life. This is the proclamation of the kingdom. Run to the kingdom. Come to the kingdom. There is no king like this king. There is no kingdom like this kingdom. In Luke chapter 10... We see them again proclaiming the nearness of God. That is the proclamation of the kingdom. We are proclaiming a king who is loving and kind and wants to be in relationship, wants to be close to us. Christ Jesus suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes unto the Father but by him. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Come right into the throne room, the holy of holies, into the presence of God like you belong there because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God wants to be with you. I'll never get over the story of the prodigal son and the father just looking and waiting. And I don't think we see that picture of the Father. We need to proclaim the nearness of God. And God has done everything to be near us. I was reading Matthew's Gospel this morning. Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. Jesus sends his disciples out to proclaim his kingdom. Secondly... Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of compassion. Now, let that sink in. Let that sink in. Because those who have been transformed in their interior world and have new hearts and are in the kingdom should also have hearts that are filled with compassion. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of compassion. He tells us here in the text that his kingdom will trample all over the kingdom of Satan. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal and they're going to have a power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. His kingdom will look upon the brokenness of fallen people and have deep love and compassion and bring freedom and healing. What do you see when you look at broken people? What do you see when you look at hurting people? Do you think, yeah, if they just not made this bad decisions, they just made good decisions like me, they just handled their money better, 
If they just, if they just didn't have a, an addict mentality, they weren't brought up in the same kind of home. We, we come up with all kinds of excuse, excuses to be absolutely judgmental, and many times we, the church, lack compassion. It is a compassionate kingdom. Let me just stop and, and try to make some application and ask you some questions. Are you a Christian? And don't, don't just gloss over that statement with a, an answer. I want you to think about it. Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you wake up every day with a sense of sentness? Do you wake up every day with a sense of sentness? I'm being sent. I want to find out where it is. Are you asking God this question? What are you sending me to? Who are you sending me to? Does that ever enter your thinking? When you wake up in the morning, what do you have for me today, Lord? There's always this sense of adventure and a sentness. I've got a friend who asked me to come preach at his church next week in my hometown, Wilmington. And it's a church plant. Um, and he, I went to middle school with him and, and high school. And we've just been just close, dear brothers. They came down and looked at what we were doing before they planted their church there in Wilmington. They meet in a gymnasium they set up every Sunday morning and they've got 50 or so people that are meeting and gathering. He was on staff at one of the largest churches in southeastern North Carolina. He was uh, a senior staff there, but he felt like God was calling him to plant a church, so he walked away from a good salary. His father was one of the uh, biggest developers in the city of Wilmington, North Carolina for all of my childhood and uh, most of my adulthood. He had a nice house on a loop road out near the Sound that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he sold that and he moved into uh, a little um, duplex. And every week, he gets on a fish truck and drives all over the southeast delivering 35,000 pounds of fish so that he can support himself in planting a church when he could have had it a lot easier. But he wakes up every morning with this sense of sentness. And being sent doesn't always mean... And by the way, by the way, his name's Jimmy Suggs, Oak Valley Baptist Church, Wilmington, North Carolina, and Ogden. Look him up because he's the best preacher in Wilmington, North Carolina. There's not, there's not a better preacher. He could have said, you know what, I want to move up and bigger opportunities and bigger churches, that's what kind of the flesh kind of is after. But this brother's my age and he's breaking his back every week unloading fish so that he can continue to shepherd these people because he has a sense of sentness. Every believer, every believer should have this sense that God is sending you. I would ask you by way of application too, when's the last time you told somebody else about how good Jesus is? When's the last time you said his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Most people look at church and they're like, oh, you folks, y'all got a bunch of rules, you got a bunch of regulations. That ain't nothing but heavy. I'm going to walk in over there and I'm going to feel judged and I'm going to feel beaten down. I'm not discounting the weight of sin. I'm not discounting the work of the Spirit in convicting. I'm for every bit of that. But the good news is that there is a Savior 
who says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Don't come over here and sign up at church and now all of a sudden life is even worse. People all around us are beaten down by sin and need good news and need to hear the gospel. And you and I were saved not only to be sent but to proclaim good news. When's the last time you told somebody about the goodness of Jesus Christ? Again, by way of application, do you feel any responsibility for those around you who are ravaged by sin? Because Jesus is sending his disciples out saying, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go to people that are demon-possessed. By the way, Jesus has already done that in the previous passage that we looked at, Legion, right? I want you to go to those that are broken. I want you to go to those whose lives are just really, really messed up. And I want you to feel compassion and I want them to be set free. Do you feel responsibility for those around you whose lives are being ravaged by Satan? Are you compassionate? Does brokenness affect you? Jesus sends us out. Do you have a sense of sentness? Jesus sends us out to proclaim the gospel. Jesus sends us out to be compassion, for compassion to flow out of us. Jesus sends us out and he wants us to be completely dependent on the sufficiency of his power in our lives. That's what he's telling the disciples here. He's saying, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. If you've got two tunics, don't take two. You don't need a garment bag. You don't need anything to hang your stuff on in the back of your camel. You just, you just go bare bones. You enter into a house and it may be run down and the food may not be good and it may be roach infested, but you go in and you stay there. Why is he saying that? He's saying two things to them. There are these shysters. There are these phonies that are running around taking advantage of people. And I don't want you to identify with them. I want you to identify with me. And I want your identity with me to be this, that I'm going to provide for you and you're going out to care for people. You're not going out to make demands so that people will care for you. So there is this issue of not wanting to identify with charlatans and false teachers, but there's also this lesson that Jesus is teaching these disciples that he wants them to be completely dependent upon him because he is absolutely sufficient. Disciples are sent. Disciples proclaim good news. Disciples have compassion. Disciples recognize that they're in over their head. And if Jesus doesn't show up, that what needs to be done isn't going to get done. He is absolutely, completely sufficient. Now, let someone go to this and say, well, why do you take a salary? Why should we support pastors? Uh, if you go to Luke chapter 22 and verse number 36, Jesus kind of gives them the opposite of this. He's like, no, no, now you go out and I want you to take a sword and, and yeah, there's going to be persecution. So don't use this as a rule to say, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. Amen? Because that would be inappropriate. But I would say for all of us, that our lives should be lives of, de of dependency upon Him. In other words, we should be sent and we should be proclaiming and we should be compassionate and we should be entering into an arena that our reason may not give us the capacity to figure out what to do once we get in it, but we need Him to be completely and totally dependent upon Him and His 
sufficiency. He also tells them the fourth thing that we're looking at in Jesus' sins is this. There will be people who will reject your message and your compassion. There will be people who will reject the gospel. Move on to the next village. He said, he said shake the dust off your feet. This is, this is uh, really telling because Jesus is telling the disciples to go into Jewish communities and shaking the dust off of their feet was a Jewish practice. They would go through Gentile territory and to make sure they didn't take any contamination into the Jewish territory, they would stop and shake the dust off of their feet as though there were some kind of Gentile cooties on in the dust. And he's saying, no, when you go into these Jewish areas and you proclaim the gospel and the Jews reject it, you treat the Jews like pagans. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Shake the dust off of your feet. And then fifthly, Jesus sends us, there will be those who will be curious and entertained by the impact that the gospel makes. Those who proclaim good news, those who are compassionate, will probably not be popular with those who are popular in society. We know that Herod is curious here. We know in Luke 23, 6, Jesus is standing before Herod, and Herod is not so curious or kind, but quite the opposite. Jesus is suffering at the hands of this same man, Herod. And Herod is now curious. We find out about his curiosity. Jesus sins, verses 1 to 9. Secondly, Jesus satisfies. We read in the text in verses 10 and 11 that the, the disciples return, the 12 return. Jesus takes them to uh, the Bethsaida exit. The Bethsaida exit is an exit where there, there, there is not a McDonald's. You know, that's a barren exit when there's not a McDonald's there. There's not a family dollar there. There's, there's not a sit-go. There's nothing there. It is a, the text tells us it is a desolate place. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why Jesus did that. Jesus did this often, but the crowds are growing so large that Jesus and his disciples cannot go anywhere um, it, by stealth. They can't go anywhere without being identified, seen, known, no matter what they do. So, but Jesus wants to take them out because their ministry activities have brought them to a point of exhaustion. If we are proclaiming good news, it is draining. If we are dealing with people who are filled with demons, spiritual warfare is absolutely draining. Fighting against the flesh is draining. Fighting institutions is draining. Fighting against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places is draining. Having compassion, feeling deep with inside of you, compassion for those that are broken and crushed by life and sin is exhausting. Now, let me say this. If you're a believer, I believe you're sent. But let me tell you, if you are sent, you don't have options. I hope you hear that. For some reason, we think that proclaiming, we think that being sent, we think that, that engaging people that are filled with demonic forces, we think that engaging people in their brokenness is somehow an option that we can pass by on the other side. The disciples didn't have options. They didn't have a switch to shut it off. If you really care about people who are desperate to be cared for, people who are desperate to be cared for will find you, and it will be costly, and it will be taxing, and it will be life-draining, and it will be disruptive to your schedule if you are sent. 
So Jesus takes them to the remote exit of Bethsaida, and the people found them. Jesus didn't go out and say, guys, we're closed now. We're here from 8 to 5. He didn't go out and say, my disciples are exhausted. Would you all please come back next week? We're kind of on vacation. Jesus just kept on teaching in the text. Jesus kept on healing. Jesus kept on ministering. Jesus kept on casting out demons. Jesus kept on caring. That's what we do when we're sent. We don't get a holiday. We don't get a break. So we see in the text that there is this exhaustion. That kind of sets it up for us to move from exhaustion to frustration in verses 12 to 14. Our ability to properly care for uh, these people that if the disciples are saying, our ability to properly care for these people that, that have haphazardly follow us out, followed us out here with so many needs is beyond our capacity and resources. That's what they're saying. When you, when you, come, when you come to uh, verse 12, now the, the day began to wear away. The day was almost gone. It's about to get dark. And the 12 came to him. All 12 had already voted evidently. And they said, it's our vote that we send the crowd away. Send them away. Send them away because we don't have to feel responsible because we are incapable and because these people need to assume responsibility for themselves. They need to go out. They need to find somewhere to stay. They need to find something to eat. So here's what they're saying. Jesus, would you please stop preaching? Would you please stop healing? Would you please have an invitation? Or would you please have a benediction? Would you bring this service to a close? Or we're about to be in a mess. It's going to be dark. These people haven't eaten. They're going to start passing out. It's going to be dangerous. Again, the rational mind begins to work. Please send them away. To add to the frustration, Jesus, the man who heals and tells the wind and the waves to shut up, who raises people from the dead, the same Jesus who is giving more responsibility to his disciples looks at them and says, yeah, there is a problem. You fix it. I'm training you. I'm preparing you. You are following me. There is a world that is waiting. You fix it. <laughs> they probably thought, is this a joke? When did Jesus become a comedian? We come and say, Jesus, send them away. We, we, don't, we, we don't have the ability or the capacity to respond to their physical needs. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. <laughs> it's probably sarcasm. Maybe it's not. Sounds like it to me. Hey, we got five loaves and two fishes. We got five Kentucky Fried Chicken Biscuits left over from breakfast. And we've got a couple of strips of fish from Captain D's. That's not going to help anybody. That's all we have. That's the, that's the extent of our capacity to respond to the physical needs of the people. Hey, Jesus, how about we go back to plan A? Send them away. Let them take care of themselves. We need some rest. Hey, Jesus. If we had 200 denarii a year's wages, we could run up to Publix and we could, we could get some rotisserie chickens and maybe some potato salad if you like Publix potato salad. But if we did that, people would probably have enough food about the size of an M&M just to get a taste. 
By the way, there are 5,000 men, which means there are probably 20,000 people. So all of this is going on, and there's all of this frustration on the heels of this demonstration of power Jesus has given them and the success of this ministry. So there is exhaustion and there is frustration, but then Jesus takes over. And when we come to verse number 14, we see the number and Jesus steps in and he says, have them sit, sit down in groups of about 50. Another text says 50 or 100. So he divides all of the people up. We see administration and organization for the sake of mission and clarity. Jesus is not haphazard. We should not, we should not have a, a, a poor view of administration or organization, although a lot of times we do, not because um, we don't like administration or organization. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. And by the way, if, if none of us liked anybody telling us what to do, there probably wouldn't be anything done except the thing that we wanted to do, which would not reflect a body functioning together. Groups of 50, if you had 5,000 people, that's 100 groups, if my math is right, which puts 12 disciples serving 8 groups of 50 or thereabout. If you extrapolate that out, you can see that the disciples at the most would probably have to feed 32 groups of people if there were, were 20,000 people there. So Jesus had organized it. Jesus looked to heaven and he, he blessed it. He acknowledged that the, the providential hand of God had given them the food. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We can go back to the manna and understand that it is God who in his providence provides, but he is also calling out to the Father, understanding that it is the providential, powerful hand of God that is going to take these resources and multiply them for his glory to meet the needs of these people. And the text says, and he, he gave. The word gave means he just kept on giving and 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 kept on giving until probably 20,000 people were fed. The amazing thing about this demonstration is that everyone there was satisfied. Again, look at the text. It says it in the text. Then he broke the loaves and gave them and kept on giving them and kept on giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate, every one of them, and were satisfied. The word, the word satisfied is a, is a word that is used to describe uh, an animal that has just eaten all it can stand. They were, they were satisfied. They were, comp they, they, I mean, when they got through, they were leaning back. Just They were kind of, don't you just hate it when somebody's like... You know, isn't that terrible? Picking their teeth. They're, they're kind of swollen. They probably had to loosen a notch in their belt, unbutton their jackets. They were satisfied. They were full. And the disciples had 12 baskets, 12 disciples, and they're looking and they're saying, five loaves, two fishes. Jesus knows what he's doing. He is absolutely sufficient. There was enough for everyone served to be filled. There was enough for everyone serving to be filled. And the conclusion is this, that Jesus is absolutely sufficient. But when we look at John's gospel and we look at John 6, 35, Jesus stands up and tells them, hey, I am the bread of life. While that metaphysical need, there's something that is better and it's your spiritual need. While your bodies definitely need to take on nourishment, there is something inside of you called a soul. 
There is the spiritual part of you and me that I believe is the greater reality within us. And Jesus said, I and a relationship with me is what will nourish you in your inner being. They ate, but I guarantee you within 12 hours, if they were used to eating once a day, they were hungry again. Our soul can only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. The interior pangs of our, of our soul are crying out for something and we're trying in every way that we can to satisfy the longings of our heart with every lie the world tells us. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If you eat this bread, you will be satisfied. I am that stream that is running over. And if you drink of me, you will never thirst again. Every time we should... Every time we sit down to eat, we should thank God for the food. And we should enjoy it. I thank God that he's given us taste buds. I don't particularly appreciate them when I'm trying to eat an avocado. But we should thank God that he's given us taste buds. And as we enjoy the provision, and it, it does whatever it does in our brain and in our body, it should remind us that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And that what you're really longing for is not to have your taste buds or your stomach satisfied. What you're really longing for is to have your soul satisfied. And your soul will only be satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone. Jesus satisfies. Thirdly, Jesus suffers. Jesus sins. Jesus satisfies. Jesus suffers. There is this curiosity who do the people say that I am? Who do the, the uncommitted mass of people say uh, that I am? And then Jesus turns it and he says, who do you say that I am? He's emphatic in saying that. In comparison to public opinion, in comparison to what other people are seeing and observing and the conclusions that they're drawing, what about you guys that are following me and are seeing everything that I'm doing? Who do you say that I am? Everybody's asking that question. They're on the boat. Jesus wakes up. I love that story because um, I love that narrative. It, it really happened. I believe, Jesus was sound, I believe Jesus was so tired when he was on the boat out on the sea that, that uh, it's one of those times, you ever fall asleep and you, you wake up and you don't know where you are and you don't know who you are and you don't know who your wife is? If, if you've never been that sound asleep, you don't know what day it is. You don't know if you're in middle school or high school or in a nursing home. You just wake up and you're just like... Uh, and Jesus, I believe Jesus was that way. And, and I, I believe he was legitimately just absolutely completely exhausted and, and probably physically in reality didn't experience what was going on in the boat. And I believe they woke him up and Jesus woke up and he, he, he probably just said, Waves, sit down and, and shut up right now. And I believe he went back and laid down and went to sleep. You say, why do you believe that? Because the disciples were saying, Who is this man? Who is this man? They weren't talking to him. They were talking among themselves. I really believe it would have been a greater shock factor too if Jesus had woken up and was stirred and told the waves and the winds what to do and was, again, still so exhausted. He said, where's your faith? And he goes and lays back down and they're like, who is this man? Who is this man? Herod says, who is this man? Jesus said, who do you think I am? That's a question that Every one of us has to answer. And the answer is not enough for the, for the answer to be in your mouth. 
Can, can you understand that? It's not enough for the answer to be in your mouth. It's not enough for us to say it with words. You can say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art Christos. Thou art Mashiach. You can, you can use every word in the dictionary. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. Who is Jesus Christ? It's not in your mouth, it's in your life. It's not the words you speak, it's the life you live. It's not an academic answer. This isn't Jeopardy. I think of Jeopardy because I spent three days this week with my mother-in-law. <laughs> you know what people in their 80s do? They watch Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune every night. And I, I'm sorry, if you do, that's fine. There's no sin. It just gives me the heebie-jeebies. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And we think that, that the questions, the theological questions are, are academic. We think it's like Jeopardy. Oh, I know the answer to that. No, no, no. How you answer this question changes everything about who you think you are and how you live. You cannot say that you are the anointed one sent by God. You cannot say that you are the Messiah. You cannot say that you are the Son of God. You cannot say that you are God. You cannot say that you are the light of the world. You cannot say that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot say that you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and then just take a gulp from your slurpee and go on and live your life any way you want to. You can't do that. changes everything. If you really believe it, it changes everything inside of you and it changes everything that you do. It changes everything that you value. Of course, Jesus commands them. He rebukes them. The word epitomao is used 12 times in the Gospel of Luke. It's used of him rebuking the winds and the waves. It's the same word here that he's using to rebuke them. He's rebuking them. Don't tell anybody because the Jews and the disciples don't understand the, the full scope of Messiah's life and ministry. There is no doubt that Messiah will be a reigning, conquering king according to the Davidic covenant. But what they've left out is that Messiah will come and bear shame. Messiah will come and suffer sorrow. Messiah will come and experience death. And this, according to the text, must happen. Don't miss that. Messiah is going to come and reign. Yes, he's going to come back in his glory. But before he comes and reigns and before he comes back in his glory, he is going to suffer for sins, but he is also going to be raised again on the third day day when we look at this suffering in the text we have to be reminded that sin is not a trifling matter we think it is we think sin's like a test driving a car you can just get in and get out anytime you want to and we don't make much of it and we don't make much of the holiness of God but when you look at the suffering of Christ when you look at the brutality when you look at uh, just how he was treated and how he was beaten and how the, the, the blood not only of an innocent man but the blood of the Son of God was shed and his life was poured out we begin to understand that sin's debt is insurmountable and dreadful and unimaginable and the price for sin can only be paid by Christ. The, Christ. the price for sin can only be paid by the Son of God. So Christ 
suffers. And Jesus says, don't you go out and talk about me until you get the whole picture. The, 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 the folks that run around with the health, wealth, and prosperity mentality, they don't get it. Those of us who, when we suffer, it rips us out of our frame. I, I, I don't, I, I'm going to put a list on the back table for anybody that wants to sign up for suffering. Nobody's going to sign it. I don't. Suffering comes my way. Struggling comes my way. I'm like, where are you, God? Why don't you come through for me? Why don't you answer prayer? Why so downcast over my soul? Put your hope in God. But suffering is part of it. Suffering was part of the life of Messiah. And suffering is going to be a part of those who follow Messiah. A suffering Messiah is absolutely necessary for the redemption of fallen humanity. And he's teaching his disciples that. He's teaching his disciples, you are going to be sent. I'm leaving. You are going to be sent. Secondly, I am going to satisfy you with myself. And if you're going to do ministry, you've got to be completely dependent upon my sufficiency. And also, I am going to suffer. And because I suffer, when you surrender to me, you are going to experience suffering. And so the application for the disciples and for us this morning is this, that we must surrender. If we follow Jesus, we'll, we will be treated like Jesus was treated. So I'll, I'll ask some questions and let the text answer those questions. How should we live if we are to follow Jesus? Because that's what he says. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me. He says the same thing over in, in uh, Luke chapter 10. He's repeating it over and over Again, follow me. Here's what he's telling us in the text, and we've already read it. How should we live if we're going to follow Jesus Christ? We should live lives of self-denial. Self-denial is a conscious effort and choice to say no to self and yes to Jesus Christ. In the material world, in the psychological world, in the mental world, in our thinking, in the relational world, it's me being aware of what I want. It's me being aware that I want my way. Me being aware that I think I always know what's best and I always know what's right. Me knowing that I'm looking for the advantage, that I always want to win. Has anybody watched any football games lately? I, I, I look at the emotion. Just look at the people. I'm, I'm not shocked by the players on the field. I'm shocked by the fans uh, in, in, the, in the seats. And by the way, if it was my team, I'd be doing the same thing. Why? We want to win. We want to win. We want, we want our guys to take that leather object filled with air across the end zone line more times than the other team does. There are people in Michigan that are, a friend of mine called me before the Michigan game, and I had to remind him, I'm not from Georgia, I'm from North Carolina, and South Carolina whooped our behinds. But I'm a basketball guy, so I don't care. It's like, well, y'all really did us in. All of this, all of this energy, we want to win. We want to be winners. We know what makes sense for us. And self-denial is just an, an, an awareness, an intentionality, a practicality of understanding my desire to promote myself and have my way and get what I want, but then live in self-denial. Our modern-day understanding of the self in, in society and in the church is anything but self-denial. We are hyper-individualized. We are self-indulgent. If you want to read Romans 1, you can see exactly where we are in American culture today. And if, if you want a fuller and historical understanding of the modern self that we need to deny, I would encourage you to read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Self-denial. 
Self-denial. When something rises up within you and you want justice for yourself or you want your way or you want your spouse to cooperate or you want Jesus to cooperate, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to live a life of self-denial. There's got to be a humility component to that. It's interesting that the rich young ruler was given the same offer. Come and follow me. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. Self-denial. The text of Scripture says he went away sad. People who do not live lives of self-denial are sad people. They're ultimately very sad people. Not only self-denial, but cross-bearing. The disciples would have understood this. Take up your cross. Take that cross piece and put it on you. You go to your death. You go to your crucifixion. You pour out your life. Now, I will tell you, every single one of us in this room is pouring our life out for something. We have either believed a lie that something is worth giving our life to, or we've believed the truth that Jesus Christ is worth giving our life to, and we're willing to take that cross and put it on us and bear it and go to our death to our self. And then Jesus says, follow. I'm hastening through. My time is, is gone, and I've got... 30 more minutes of notes. He said, follow. Someone has said, follow is this. It's the continual pattern of obedience. I don't disagree with that, but I would say following Jesus Christ is much more than that. Following Jesus Christ is relational. Following Jesus Christ is a continual awareness of his presence. If I am following him, I am with him. It's not a a cold, sterile, legalistic obedience. It isn't following rules. It isn't checking the devotional box and saying, hey, I'm self-righteous, look at me. It's, it's, It's following him, which means I am in relationship and fellowship with him, and we are together. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. How? Because we're together. We're together, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It gives us a whole new energy and perspective on obedience. Finally, he answers the question, why should this kind of life be appealing or desirable to us? And he, he answers it with the word for every time. Why should, I, why should I want to deny myself? Why should I want to come after Christ? Why should I want to deny myself? Why should I want to take up my cross daily? Why should I want to follow Jesus Christ? Here's why. There are these universal principles that, that, are, that are incontrovertible, that are undeniable, that are not going to change for anybody no matter what you believe or what you think or wherever you live. And notice he gives us this paradox of life. Whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's everybody across the board, every single human being. You lose your life, you'll save it. You save your life, you live for yourself, you try to preserve life. The surest way to lose your life is to obsess over how to protect it. The surest way to lose your life is to obsess over how to prolong it. The surest way to lose your life is to obsess over how to preserve it. The surest way to lose your life is to obsess over how much more I can accumulate. Life is not given to us to be preserved or hoarded or spent on me and my desires and pleasures. Life has been given to us for us to give it away. And that's the paradox of life. We were born to die and between birth and death. Real life is found in dying to self and being alive by and for 
Jesus Christ. And most of us are miserable and angry and frustrated because we're trying to find life on our terms instead of his. It's this paradox that's always true. And, and do, do we see it in any greater capacity in our lifetime than in the day and age in which we live? We, we, we just, you know, somebody says, Boo! Boo! There's, there's, do, I believe, do I believe COVID is real? I absolutely believe COVID is real. Do I believe people have died from COVID? I absolutely believe people have died from COVID. I may die from COVID. You may die from COVID. I'm not trying to make light of COVID at all. I'm not trying to make light of anything that would take our life away from us. But I'll be honest with you, I don't want to live as long as my dad did and spend the last three or four years of my life in a nursing home not knowing who I am because medication and the medical profession has been able to prop him up physically, but his brain's been gone a long time. I'm not trying to take control over any of that, but I will tell you that we need to spend our lives giving our lives away instead of trying to preserve our lives to live as long as we can possibly live to end up in some vegetative state somewhere. So it's not about just preserving our life. But then, but then he moves from, from, from a paradox to profit. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? Or one text says, Matthew, I think he loses his own soul. <laughs> There's always an exchange that's taking place. We're always, we're always exchanging. Most of us think if we win the world that we have something valuable. We want to make a profit. We want our, our investments to increase. We want our businesses to make money. We want our skills to improve. We want our grades to be better. Profit is good. But when we give ourselves to that and exchange that for our soul, that literally is the exchange that's taking place because I'm looking at all the value systems of the world saying, this is value, go after it, I want that profit. What about the profit to my soul? What about the profit to my interior man? What about the profit to my spiritual life? And I believe Jesus would say that you can't have both. So there's the universal paradox of life, but there's also the understanding of Profit and what is profitable? What is profitable is what happens in your soul as we enter into this relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and He sends us out to be willing to suffer and lay down our lives and take up a cross and be identified with Him and criticized. Thirdly, we see pressure. He says, For whoever Again, a third four. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. What is, what is he saying as he says that? Listen to your shame. What is your shame telling you? When we go out and identify with Jesus Christ in the world, the world is going to shame us. Are you going to be ashamed of Christ? Are you going to be ashamed of his word? Are you going to be ashamed of your desire to see people come to know him? He is suffering now, but he is coming back in glory. And when he comes back in Glory, he is going to identify with those who identified with him in this life through our willingness to come after him, through our willingness to, 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 to experience self-denial and suffering and even death and to follow him and experience and find joy in his presence above all things. So Jesus sends us. Jesus satisfies us. Jesus suffers and calls those who follow him to suffer. And the call of the gospel this morning is, is to surrender. 
and I would ask you, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And have you surrendered everything to him? Have you surrendered your life? Have you surrendered your resources? Have you surrendered your values? I would beg you this morning, I would plead with you, the only way you'll ever be satisfied at the deepest level of your being is if you surrender to Jesus Christ. And if, if you wake up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, you saved me. Where are you sending me? Who can I proclaim good news to? Is there somebody suffering or struggling that I can come enter into that suffering and struggling and help them and walk with them? Is there something that you're calling me to do that I know I can't do myself, but you're absolutely completely sufficient. And I'm not going to make excuses and I'm not going to get frustrated and I'm not going to bail. I'm not going to come up with an alternative rational plan that says send them away, but I'm going to say, I don't know what to do, but Jesus sure can do something about it. How are you living this morning? As we start 2022, there, there could be no greater desire in your heart than for Jesus to send you if you are his.